0: Well, our belief is that if you're not green or at least triple bottom lined or ethical or ESG or many other terms that that people are using now, we don't believe you'll survive. We now see the fourth industrial revolution, which is driven by a sustainable ethos, it's driven by a huge cultural shift towards circular economy, and there's going to be thousands if not hundreds of thousands of new companies that need to be created. And in October, we're launching another 10 companies, so at the same time it's raising capital. Actually, people can jump on the website probably when they hear this, unrest.world, and if you have a fantastic idea, if you're building something, we would love to hear from you.
1: Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Srani, and I'm your host, Padia Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Orr Weingold, founder of Undressed. Some ideas deserve to go further, faster. Welcome, Orr.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure.
1: It seems to be more common today than ever before that we are coming across several companies that want to launch sustainable products. Besides the imminent climate change that we are experiencing, what is the sudden drive for such businesses to sprout?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you've certainly touched upon one of the biggest drivers, which is climate. And we see particularly, you know, the younger generation driving that. We see movements from Greta through to Extinction Rebellion in Europe, who are really propagating and pushing that agenda. Mm-hmm. On the other side, we see other social aspects where you know, young people who've grown up with social media are seeing the critically negative effect that that's having on their mental well-being, And there's a fight back being led by mostly young people who are seeing the negative impacts that corporations effectively cause to both society and also to the planet, and they want a better world. You know, like generations before, we've always been fighting for something better, um, and they're no different.
1: So what is the trigger for the young generation to go up in arms?
0: (laughs) Well, for a lot of people, it's personal experience. Um, So, you know, when we talk about social media, it's a personal experience. For a lot of people, it's seeing what's happening to the planet. And, you know, the consequence of what we and the generation before us have done will be mostly borne by them. And so the cost of that is very apparent to them. But we look at it in a really macro level. So we see industrial revolutions. The last four industrial revolutions have always had a cultural undertone to them. And by that, I mean, just very quickly, we think about the last industrial revolution, which was around internet and data and information. Um, the technological shift was computers and cables and the internet. The cultural shift was about transparency. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't have had social media. We wouldn't have had this kind of open sharing of information if there wasn't a cultural shift around transparency. And so they go hand in hand the technology and the culture. And we now see the fourth industrial revolution which is driven by a sustainable ethos, it's driven by a huge cultural shift towards circular economy and there's going to be thousands if not hundreds of thousands of new companies that need to be created to satisfy this new cultural shift and we're we're almost in day you know day 3 of cultural shift here and the companies haven't Fully caught up with what's happening with the consumers. And so we exist to build those companies of the future with the ethos of this new cultural shift.
1: If you had to give a percent, what percent of the startups are mission driven or at least have a sustainability component to them?
0: In the UK, we have 6,000 startups who come through every year. Um, You know, it's different in every country. So I'll give you three stats. In Sweden, 66% of all venture capital now goes to mission-driven companies, so two-thirds, it's huge. In Germany, it's 59%. And in the UK, it's 8 there are some countries who are absolutely leading the way and there are some countries who are behind. And part of our job is to build an infrastructure and ecosystem that can take that 8% and shift it to 60 to 70 And we're starting with the UK, but we're also coming to America and to Asia and Africa soon. So uh, we've got big plans.
1: So you've heard of the green line versus the bottom line. How can green companies actually survive?
0: Well, our belief is that if you're not green, or at least triple bottom lined, or ethical, or ESG, or many other terms that that people are using now, we don't believe you'll survive. So unless you shift towards that mentality, we just simply don't think you'll exist in 30 years time. So we see this as a 30, 40 year shift. Um, And the really smart companies, people like Unilever, are already making that shift. Mm -hmm. So they've made a, a commitment that every single one of their brands will be mission driven in the next five years. So this is the second biggest FMCG company in the world, making a very clear commitment to become mission-driven 100% in the next five years. It's a phenomenal shift, and you know there are many companies who are following in their footsteps, but they're just one example.
1: For all businesses to survive, there needs to be demand, right? Mission-driven, sustainable businesses need consumers to buy in. Right. Are consumers ready for this?
0: Yeah, that's an awesome question. So we think it is, but we're not the only ones that think it is. So we look at a lot of international data. There was a survey done by Ipsos Mori during uh, coronavirus, which asked people what kind of world do they want to return to after coronavirus? And what was fascinating, is that on that question, people want to return to a sustainable and a more equitable future. And what fascinated us when we looked at that data and we dug into it is, Mm -hmm. if you look at the rates in China, it was 79% of people who answered that that's the world they wanted to return to. If you look at the US, that was 84%, the UK was 82%. It was an international consensus amongst the people that they want to go back to something better. And so that's one data, that's intention, but your question is really, really about are they going to be spending and again another data that we have in the UK is that household spending on impact or mission driven has gone up by 400% in the last 20 years Mm -hmm. it's outstripping the increase in demand by two and a half times so you know if you're a mission driven company in the last 20 years your sales will have grown by two and a half times faster than a non-mission business in that space
1: So, sustainable products do cost more and Post-pandemic, so many people have been displaced, lost their jobs, and the past year has not been easy. Even in affluent countries like UK and the United States, where people have been fortunate enough to get some support. How would you launch a product in this climate, in this
0: environment? Yeah, it's a really awesome point. So there's two answers to that. One is that sustainable consumption can often be about consuming less of something that's higher quality. Mm -hmm. So, if we look at fashion, for example, you can buy six pieces of fast fashion that cost you ten bucks, fifteen bucks a piece, um, and you spend a hundred dollars or so on six pieces that might last you two or three wears, and you'll put them in the cupboard and never wear them again. Um, You could also buy an item. That you really value, you respect, you have an emotional connection to, you know where it comes from, you know who made it, you love wearing it because of what it means to you. You know, you love it because it's also ethical. It's been produced in a way that aligns with your values. And that piece is a piece you might have for years. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about consuming less but consuming higher quality. The second part is that sustainable companies don't necessarily need to cost more. So we work with businesses. For example, I'll give you a fertility company. And what they're doing is they're creating effectively the same service that you would have in a fertility clinic at home for you to use. So they've developed tech software and hardware that allows you to have an experience that you would have in a clinic. So it's around fertility that costs 90% less than a clinic and can be delivered through your post um, the next day rather than having to book an appointment for months or weeks in advance. And when we think about fertility, time is really, really critical. You know, waiting around every day is stressful. Every day is really difficult for people trying. And so they've managed to reduce the cost by ninety percent and deliver it really quickly using tech. And they're you know a brilliant startup. They're in our accelerator right now. There you know we see them every day. And that product defies um, that thesis, I suppose.
1: For the folks who are listening to this podcast and who are not familiar with the startup world, what is an accelerator? <laughs>
0: <laughs> good question what an accelerator fundamentally is it's a place for startups to gather so we work with 15 and we work with them for a really short period of time we work with them for four months and what we provide them is workshops so specific workshops on things like how to raise money how to embed impact how to brand your products for example and they're delivered by experts so people who really know what they're talking about so that really helps with the knowledge gap hmm The second part is around community. So you're around 15 others, you're sharing, you're on that journey. Uh, Being a founder can be quite lonely. And so it's a really great space to learn from others and be around others who are going through that journey. The third part is around funding. So we help them raise money, but we also provide capital. So we invest into them and we have a particular focus. So we focus on impact, of course. We focus on founder well-being, mental health, and culture that's really important and we focus on diverse founders Mm -hmm. and so our program looks very different from what a traditional venture capitalist or accelerator might look like but you know the summary is we help them with money we help them with knowledge and we give them lots of our time to make sure that they have the right foundation to build really awesome global businesses so
1: how is an accelerator different from an incubator
0: Very, very similar. So the only difference really is um, around what stage of business. So an incubator typically will bring together a founder when they have a very, very early idea. So they're still working out what it is. They might be finding a co-founder. Whilst an accelerator is really for people who know what they want to build, they've found the founder, the co-founder they might want to build it with, they already started building the product. Mm-hmm. So they might have a, a physical product, or they might start building the software. And so they're ready to start thinking about what customers they want to get. And we help them find those customers, get those first you know, 10,000 customers so that they can start having revenue. And so it's really about stage. And And after us, typically what you have is you know, big venture capital, big investors coming in and they have the money to then hire a really skilled team and experts. But in that kind of early stage, you don't have the money and you don't have the skills yet. And so we fill that gap off particularly on the skills side, where we bring in the real experts to kind of um, support in the areas that everybody might need, like law, accounting, marketing, sales, tech, et cetera. I think
1: founder mental health is really, really important. We've spoken to some startups and they said every round of funding, they basically have cramps in their stomach. You know, it's like nothing comes easy, understandably, but also it just is extremely stressful for most founders. And if anybody's seen the sitcom Silicon Valley can probably relate to that. Yeah. So it's pretty commendable that you are taking that into account,
0: too. Yeah, I think there are some challenges that founders go through which are pretty unique. There are challenges around being responsible for other people's livelihoods. There are challenges around putting everything you have, emotionally and personally, into your business, investing yourself into it. There are challenges around no sleep, lack of exercise, no holidays just a lot of pretty tough things The solitude of starting your own business the highs and the lows really really tough mm-hmm. i think it's pretty crazy that other accelerators or incubators or investors will push the human beings that they're invested into so hard, so close to breaking point, where actually the value of their investment could fall to zero because that person is burning out, that person is crashing out. And for us, that's just an unacceptable human cost. We've got to build businesses with um, resilient founders, you know, who are well in themselves, because people who are not, who are stressed out and burnt out can't build great businesses, they can't build great cultures. They treat people badly. They create, you know, pretty toxic environments. The pressure that's been put onto them, onto the teams below them, into their suppliers, into the ecosystem. It's hard to be empathetic and to build empathetic businesses when you are stressed and close to burnout. And so we look to create foundations that stop that happening.
1: So you graduated from university in 2011. What did you do after you graduated?
0: I went to work for Procter & Gamble, which is, of course, one of the big FMCGs. I spent some time working for Gillette. And if you've ever bought anything from Gillette, you will know the amount of plastic that product comes in. You'll know how far it's shipped around the world. um, And you'll also know the kind of damage that the advertising causes from these kind of companies. And um, it really didn't align with my values I very quickly realized that Procter & Gamble's environmental focus was pretty far behind my own sense of what needed to happen. Um, I joined L'Oreal, which I thought was more entrepreneurial. I could make more of an impact there. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, you know, I think we all, in the back of our minds, have known that the beauty industry its advertising the standards it tries to set, particularly for women. I think we've all known in our hearts that that has been pretty toxic. I saw a report on my boss's desk, which... I don't think was meant to be seen by many, but um, it correlated the amount of money spent by the big four beauty companies, L'Oreal being one of them, um, in different countries with rates of bulimia, anorexia in women. And the correlation between advertising and those rates, there was almost a perfect correlation curve across those countries. And you know, when I talk about the social damage that corporations can do to people, the, the mental health damage, we think about social media companies, but the beauty industry, the fashion industry, they're all responsible for some of this damage and they don't pay a price for it. You know, the, At the end of the day, it's the taxpayer and it's the individuals who pick up the bill for that damage. And so we need a world that's different. You know, we need a world that doesn't do that to consumers, that doesn't need to create a lack in people to sell a product. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to build companies that will replace those large companies who are doing that to us as people and society.
1: So you dabbled a little bit in politics. You ran for parliament. What, what about that? That's octagonal to what you're talking right now.
0: So after L'Oreal, just there was kind of I started working in startups because I thought that they would be more ethical. There'd be they'd push the agenda that I believed in more. And actually. We in the UK had Brexit, you guys had Trump, we had, I felt that our country was moving in a direction I didn't particularly like. I immigrated to the UK, I came from the Middle East, where I grew up, I had a ton of opportunities growing up in the UK, whether that was university or schooling, and I felt I came to a pretty open-minded country, the UK was very welcoming, had a ton and ton of opportunities. And as I got older, I started to see we're pulling the ladder up, you know, new immigrants or working class kids, you know, who need the help. And we started to say, well, you know what, just do it on your own, just succeed on your own. And there's a lot of kind of racism building up in the UK. And for me, that just felt I've benefited from these policies. I've benefited from a liberal open country. Um And I've given back to the country, and now we're taking away the opportunity from other people, and it felt that I had to do something. I felt compelled I could just sit there and watch that happen. and so I put myself forward to run where I grew up in my hometown uh, for parliament for Westminster. Mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, you know I tried to try to make a dent in the right direction.
1: How oh, far did you go?
0: <laughs> um in the u k we have uh we have four or five I think we had six parties running where I was. We did very well, so we increased our vote by around 10%. We had a 10% swing, but we needed more. We needed a 15% swing. So we still came in second. We were 3,000 votes short of winning the seat.
1: So when did you start unrest?
0: Four years after that, so about a year ago, I left my previous job. And for a long time, I'd been thinking about how to make wholesale change in the world. So I didn't want to just run one company that would do good in the world. I wanted to find a way to unleash many, many companies, hundreds of companies. We're going to be launching 540 companies in the next eight years. Mm -hmm. And so that's a macro, that's a big shift that we want to make. We think that out of those 540, many, many of those will be huge winners and change industries and change the world. And so what we basically do is give a leg up to heroes who are starting businesses and we just help them a little bit on the journey. And that's our, you know, we're so happy with that. So where do you get the funding? So we're raising money. So today we're raising money. We're building a fund. So it's going to be a 10 million plus fund. It's going to be the first of its kind in Europe, which focuses exclusively on impact and exclusively on consumer brands and companies. So we are talking to institutional investors, families who have capital, individuals who have vision and capital to put into this and believe in what we're doing. And our fundamental thesis is, look, you're not just supporting this change that needs to happen, the money returns are on the same level as you would be getting from a venture capitalist fund or investing in in a kind of similar product. So we think we're going to be delivering great returns and also doing it in a way that makes you feel great and changes the world for the better.
1: You've had um, one batch already graduate since you started unrest
0: yeah so we've had they finished this week so this is the graduation week we've had five companies come through and in october we're launching another 10 companies so at the same time as raising capital actually people can jump on the website probably when they hear this unrest.world and if you have a fantastic idea if you're building something we would love to hear from you we are launching 10 companies in october in london at our office at our accelerator there Mm -hmm. and uh, we're really excited to hear from people
1: so after October 2021, when would the next applications open up?
0: So for the October batch, we open applications on August 1st and they close mid-September. For the next batch, it's our spring-summer cohort. So we start that in March, April next year, 22, and they all run for four months. They're all in a physical location in our office in London to start off with, but we will in the future be building international locations. In our current batch, for example, we had a team from Argentina who came to join the cohort. And so we love international founders. We love um, founders from all over the world. But we do have a criteria that they must be based in London for the duration of the program, because we are building a community. Mm-hmm. And part of the, you know, all the workshops are in person. You will be engaging with people on a daily basis. And that's a really critical part. Yeah. So we are, we are really excited. We're super open to hear from ambitious founders who are looking to build business in a better way.
1: So typically, how much funding does each startup receive from you?
0: Once we've raised our fund, they will receive £30,000 as they enter the program. Um, And I can explain a little bit why we do it this way. And then they can receive up to £175,000 as they leave the program. Um, So there's two funding rounds that we put money in, and I can go into why, and that's useful.
1: So for this funding, what percent of ownership does Unrest receive?
0: So for the 30,000, we receive 6%, and for the 175,000, we don't set the rate. So what we say is that we follow what you can raise in the market, but very often when you're raising capital, really hard to get that first little chunk of commitment, and you know, once you say to an investor, "Look, I've already raised 100,000, 200,000 out of the million or whatever I need to raise," you know, they already you know feel okay. This is rolling, this is moving, there's validation. Someone else is investing. It's really helpful for other investors to know. Right. Funny, the little bits uh, like uh, they move in packs. Mm-hmm. So they like to follow. They don't always like to be the only ones or the first.
1: So why did you break up your funding into these two different components?
0: So the first part, everybody gets. So no matter who you are, if we accept you into the program, everybody receives that. And the reason we felt it's important to give founders some money at the beginning is because we have a commitment to diversity in our cohorts. And, you know, we recognize that not everybody comes from a background where they have a lot of money that they can just go and take four months off work and survive. Mm -hmm. We recognize some people have dependents, people come from all sorts of backgrounds, and the luxury of having four months of just dedicating yourself to your startup that doesn't make any money yet can be quite difficult. So that £30,000 can be used for salaries, it can be used for whatever you need, it can be used on your business if you want, but it allows us to level the playing field and say, anybody can apply. Money is not going to be a blocker for you. And then,
1: of course, after you've received a small chunk and you are able to go out and raise some more money on your own. What are your acceptance rates?
0: Well, we've run one cohort through. So the first cohort was very network-driven. So we went out and were pretty careful with who we spoke to. We didn't launch this far and wide. We had a very sort of quiet application process. So we weren't very open. In terms of getting applications but this next round which is open on our website uh, we expect to be receiving thousands of applications for our program and we have 10 spots
1: so it's pretty tough to be able to get it
0: it's difficult but we are also not binary so um, the fact you might not have gotten into the autumn winter cohort doesn't mean that the spring summer so we keep in touch with people we think often ideas are either too early or not ambitious enough those are the two main reasons you know we don't take people in, but what we do do is run public events and public workshops where people can come and continue to develop their ideas so that they're ready for a future. so we don't, we don't stop supporting people because you know our mission is to change the infrastructure to change to bring more and more companies who do this. so we want to provide as much support to these applicants as possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We also work with other accelerators and funds and where we think another fund or accelerator has a better chance and specialty in supporting people, we will also direct them and make those connections.
1: The reason I asked is, in the US, Y Combinator is a very difficult accelerator to be accepted. And it has the acceptance rates of one and a half percent. But even with that, 20% of art startups fail. What do you expect unrest success rate to be? I mean, it's hard to predict, but if you had to guess.
0: So Traditionally, um, a VC would say success is a hundred million plus exit. So we look at it far more broadly and not just on the revenue, Mm -hmm. but we look at, of course, the triple bottom line and what's the impact they're making. However, having said that, the way that we think about impact is we want our founders to embed impact directly into the business model. For example, the fertility company I told you about, The larger they get, the more people have access to lower cost fertility, faster fertility. And so the faster that business grows, the bigger that business is, the more people have access to it. And so there's a real, it's called lockstep. Mm -hmm. We try to make impact, live in lockstep with revenue and business growth. The bigger the business is, the more impact it makes in the world. And so when we think about that traditional way of 100 million pound plus businesses. We see 10% of our cohorts. We expect 10% of them to make it to that level. And we expect around 24% of them to be multi-million pound businesses and going concerns. And we expect the rest to continue to operate or potentially fail, uh, but not break that kind of globally scalable potential that they have. So, you know, I'd say 35% of our businesses will be making double digit million revenue. So, you know, at least 10 million in revenue a year, you know, and we don't look at the others as failures. We, you know, everyone has a role to play and everyone does amazing things. But from a globally scalable perspective, we expect about 35% of them to make it.
1: So how do you evaluate these startups? Do you have like a checklist or similar to what B Corp has? They have all these things that you must accomplish, but most of your startups probably are not at that stage,
2: right?
0: So by the way, we work with B Corp pretty closely. They're part of our program and um, they come in, you know, we co-deliver workshops. They're um, a critical partner of ours. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we use the B Corp framework ourselves, and we support companies to go through the B Corp framework whilst they're on the works- on the program. Um, however, in the assessment period, we look at really three things. One, what's the team like? Are they founders who can go the distance? Can they build a huge company? Mm-hmm. And secondly, are they diverse? So we have a pretty strict criteria. We are Uh, We really, really want to readdress the balance that's happening in venture and finance around diversity. It is endemically um, shocking what is happening there. And so those are the two kind of core criteria. The second is, is this a globally scalable vision? Is this a business that can actually get big? Is this a, a market? So what we tend to shy away from is you know someone who wants to build a small kombucha factory in their garden or a brewery or and they're doing it super ethically because the impact that that's making just isn't quite to the level we wanted to make in the world and then thirdly are they willing and are they already thinking about impact? So we have a question on our application, which is around that. And so founders who have no interest in making a positive impact or building an ethical business, and they just have no interest, they're not open to it. um, Unfortunately, that's not what we're looking for. We need people who want to build brilliant businesses that make great profits, but not at the expense of society or the planet.
1: You touched upon diversity and there are many funds now who have said that they will not invest in funds if they don't have a woman board member. Because they've seen that there is some statistics. It is statistics driven, which I'm glad because proof is in the pudding, right? So is that one of your reasons too? You want an equitable world, but you also see there's a lot of potential for these firms to be successful.
0: Firstly, to have one woman on the board um, out of a full board feels like a very low bar to try and reach. I think 50% of the population are women. And so, you know, one out of 10, one out of five, frankly, is, I mean, we don't count that as diversity. That's obviously kind of one point. The second is, you know, the industry is shifting, right? And they might be shifting for maybe not the most truly like ethical and moral reasons. They might be doing it for PR. They might be doing it for <laughs> for show. But there's a shift happening. And I'm not going to uh, negate the fact that change is happening, whether it's for great reasons or slightly less great reasons. I'm not fussy. The fact that it's moving in the right direction is brilliant news. But well, we really believe that diverse teams are what's needed. And we really, you th- know, if you look at venture finance at the moment, so 93% of every dollar or 93% of all investments go to one demographic white men. So that means that if you are a non-white woman, your chance of getting money, you have a 2% of capital to aim for. That's how much capital goes to non-white men, to women of, uh, of color, for example. That needs to be readdressed pretty drastically. You know, people are making inroads, people are having a lot of conversations, people are talking about it, but we really want people to actually do it. And let's look at your portfolio. We have a lot of VCs and finance organizations who talk the talk, look at their portfolio. They're all run by the same kind of people, Ivy League, Oxbridge educated, white males. And so I look forward to a bit more scrutiny on that. I look forward to people having to match their words to their actions, but in general, I am pleased that this is something people are talking about and that big organizations are making, you know, these commitments and saying they want to do this. I think that's wonderful. I really hope that it continues through to action too.
1: Do you invest in solo founders? Because often startups want a team. There are pros and cons to a team, right? So the team is all in sync and like a well-oiled machine. That's great. But sometimes I've seen very good startups, which are solo founders, like, for instance, Canva, or I don't know if you've used Jotform. Many of them are solo founders who have done very well, but uh, traditionally we say, I need this team that you bring along. What is your criteria?
0: Yeah, that is not one of our criteria. So when we look at founding team, we look at who the founder is, we look at their advisory board, we look at who they've hired. We do not reject solo founders. I was a solo founder in this business for a long time. You know, the first you know, 50% of this business was built by me as a solo founder mm-hmm. until I found you know, potential co-founders, as you say, Canva is a brilliant example. I think she was turned down, you know, over a hundred times for investment, and I'm sure most of those firms had a you no know, solo founder rule. You know, I'm sure they're maybe reassessing that. So no, we're not exclusionary in that sense. You know, we'll look at five founders, we'll look at one founder. It's funny with venture, you know, and these investors, they have this these kind of rules of thumb about what needs to happen and not and they're pretty ubiquitous they treat everyone you know they just apply this rule an interesting stat that we have i think it was a big harvard study Mm -hmm. that looked at the main causes of business failure so 68 percent of business failure is attributed to human fallout and typically that is founder fallout so the biggest killer of businesses is founders falling out firstly we try to mitigate that through the resilience the culture and the mental well-being part of our program, but also this idea that the solo founders are are super risky and and really difficult. Well, it's also risky with two. It's also risky with three. It's venture. It's risky.
1: I was part of a startup and I had funding to create a taxi hailing app in 2012.
0: Wow. (laughs) Amazing.
1: And had full funding, like just going in like within two or three months, but my team just didn't pan out sadly the team we got money too quickly too fast for everybody to even understand you know uh, what it is it was just too easy and i really think if we had had to struggle a little bit more the people who weren't so committed would have been weeded out
0: i mean congrats on firstly stepping out and trying to build something i think that's you know always respect for doing that that's comes with so many challenges and I think it's really difficult you know Mm -hmm. this is part of the problem part of the thing that we're trying to solve is you know just giving someone money and not the expertise and the support and the advice and the advisors and the you know the knowledge um, can be really fatal for the startup and you know most startups when we ask them what do you want they say just give us money and actually sometimes early founders or first-time founders don't fully know what they need And we find this kind of, okay, well, we will give you money, but what's probably more important is actually the intellectual and best practice support that we can give you. So we've got two recruiters on our board, for example, because people are so important and knowing who to recruit, how to judge that, how to manage them. um, is just so critical. So yeah, I mean, well done. And yeah, wow, that could have been some journey.
1: You are targeting mission-driven firms, but I think all firms should be mission-driven. It shouldn't be a speciality. Yeah. So do you see a future where you don't have a niche, you don't have a particular job because all the startups which come to you or come to any VC is um,
0: mission-driven? We hope that the world, well, we imagine a world that in 30, 40 years time, that would be the case. Yeah, totally. That's a really exciting vision for us. So I think two points on that. One is that you can always push that further. So, you know, being the experts, you know, Y Combinator were the first accelerator, really. They became experts of what they do. They're brilliant at launching tech businesses. They do it super, super well. Mm -hmm. So us being able to do it super, super well is still brilliant for the world. And we can um, accelerate businesses even faster and work with more. We can digitize our program so that more people have access to it. We can continue to inspire other accelerators and VCs to follow in our footsteps. We can... Uh, be a beacon of what excellence looks like in impact. And that's the vision of unrest. Um, the second part is that not everyone in the world is where the, as I kind of said, laid out front, you know, Sweden's at 66%, the UK's at 8%. There are countries around the world who are just not even thinking about impact and mission. And so unrest is about not just the Western world and developed economies, it's around how do we then shift you know, developing and, you know, economies where that's harder to do? How do we shift governments and policy around the world? So our mission doesn't stop in the UK and Europe and America. We are here to, to spread that to other governments and other countries. So we've got a long way to go.
1: On that inspirational note, thank you so much, R, for coming on Mindful Businesses.
0: Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. And as I said at the front, really thank you for putting this together and uh, really love the mission that you're working on. And, you know, it's a huge respect and I'm super honored to be on.
1: Thank you again. You're listening to Mindful Businesses with... The if you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. Remember to rate and review us. To learn more about this and our other episodes, check out our website, mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two on this episode, share it with one friend. This is Vidya Ayer with mindful businesses.